Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill Miller. Our guest is Dr. Muhammad Awesome Khan, Professor Emeritus of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Khan obtained his medical degree in 1965, and after two years of Army service, he obtained his postgraduate training in the UK and the US, completed his rheumatology fellowship in Cleveland in 1973, and joined the faculty of Case Western Reserve University. He served until 2012 as a fully tenured professor of medicine when his university awarded him the title of Professor Emeritus of Medicine. Three years later, he was inducted into the Medical Hall of Honor at Metro Health Medical Center, the hospital he has served since 1971. His research interests focus on clinical, genetic, and therapeutic aspects, primarily of ankylosing spondylitis and related forms of spondyloarthritis, and to a lesser extent, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and fibromyalgia. He has authored and or edited eight books, 52 book chapters, and more than 300 scholarly articles, and 158 scientific abstracts. He has been elected as a master of both the American College of Physicians and the American College of Rheumatology, and is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in the, the UK. He's also a recipient of the American College of Rheumatology's Distinguished Rheumatologist Award, and received Lifetime Achievement Awards from Spartan and the Ohio Association of Rheumatology. He is one of the founding members of ACES, Spartan, and Grappa, the three premier international organizations interested in research related to ankylosing spondylitis and spondyloarthritis. He serves as the section editor for the journal Current Rheumatology Reports and is a peer reviewer for Up to Date. He had served as a member of the National Advisory Board for the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Disorders. He's also served as a member of various committees in various organizations, as well as for the Spondylitis Association of America, for which he received an award for a lifetime of dedication and devotion to people with spondyloarthritis, and also their Greg Field Award that is given to individuals with AS who have persevered and gone on to be service of others. He has lived with severe ankylosing spondylitis since age 12. He is a frequent invited speaker at national and international scientific meetings. So Dr. Khan, first, I, I'm very proud that you, uh, I'm very proud of Ohio at the moment, that you've come out of Ohio, my hometown, uh, and your commitment to people living with AS throughout your career and your life. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about your perspective, living with the disease and also treating patients. So can you share kind of a brief overview of your background as a rheumatologist and the intersection of your personal experience living with it? That's not an easy question to answer. I think uh, you read my brief bio that sums up uh, or at least gives a better answer to your question. In other words, um, uh, I faced um, adversity, but uh, luckily my culture, my upbringing, 
my uh, story as a refugee um, who was three and a half years old, having lost my toddler brother during um, all the upheaval that happened. And um, I uh, never uh, thought a hurdle can't be overcome. So uh, when I developed uh, spondylitis uh, that was not diagnosed initially, I tried to persevere and uh, I succeeded in entering medical school at a very young age. They call over their medical college rather than medical school. And um, I was in and out of the hospital during those student days as well. And um, one time I was thinking of uh, taking time off from my studies, but uh, that was not my personality. So finally, when the diagnosis was made, uh, the professor gave me phenylbutazone, which is one of the earliest uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that was dramatically effective. And despite my hip joint involvement, my back pain and all the symptoms, I even managed to um, uh, captain the college rowing team or boating, you can call, where in the river you, you use your upper body <laughs> to row the boats. And um, I even played a game of cricket. Uh, where I couldn't run. So it, the game allows uh, a substitute runner. Wow. So, uh, so um, after graduation, I was thinking of going overseas, but then a neighboring country attacked the country where I was growing up. So I volunteered to serve in the army never told them that I had any illness uh, because of my zeal to serve the nation that had given me almost free education, free medical, almost free medical education with scholarship. So um, um, the ex they normally examine every recruit. So here I was a volunteer, but they examined me and I tried to do my best so that I wouldn't reveal my lack of mobility of my spine. And um, the um, to make the long story short, I was the only person, only male graduate of my class who volunteered to serve in the army. We were all doctors, just <laughs> new doctors whose help was needed for a nation that had been attacked. So I was the only person who volunteered, even though I had spondylitis. So uh, you can see my personality very different from the nation where I grew up. And it's sad to say that very nation is having very bad times because those moral fabric has disappeared. And that nation, I will mention, I don't need to mention the name, 
but this is what happens um, when ethics and uh, responsibility and uh, um, what else can I say? I'm just saddened that um, I have that kind of history, but um, um, I am still ticking and I'm doing my best. And the reason I stayed in Cleveland uh, because I wanted to take care of people who have no insurance. And Metro Health Medical Center, which is a Cleveland County Hospital, was such, such a hospital. And I wouldn't bill anybody. And later on, I was forced, as the uh, healthcare evolved in USA, to start billing patients. So I stayed there all that time. And I have a I had a very nice time over there, although I could have gone other places. That's amazing. I hadn't... You can edit my answer. No. It was, uh, I was moving from one element to another to sum up uh, uh, my background and uh, why I feel that, that there is, uh, hurdles are always there in one's life to be encountered and and overcome. So that's what I've tried to do. I'm in awe, to be honest. Uh, I think this is, though it's a theme I've seen from people with spondylitis, I think they, they try really hard to find a way, or I like to call it the third door, right? If the world isn't the world's putting hurdles there's another door you can get through but like this is amazing uh i'm not, i'm not usually speechless and i am speechless today <laughs> uh so in your approach i as you went through i i can i make the assumption that you chose rheumatology because of the condition yes okay I initially wanted to be a cardiologist um, and um, but um, it so happened that when I left uh, the army, um, I was going to go to UK and my professor who had recognized my illness um, said that his very close friend has, has just had a heart attack and I don't want him to be taking care of a cardiology unit of his own hospital because he felt that the care may not be good. Oh. This is 1966-67. There were not many coronary care units. So he asked me to take care of him at his home. He was a big businessman. So I spent a few days at his home. And the very first day, while the professor was sitting uh, on the patient's bed on one side, I noticed that the patient had cardiac arrest. So I resuscitated him. And luckily, the oxygen cylinder had arrived. And, and I didn't have to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing. But I realized that um, since other... Um, since the oxygen arrived, they put a mask on and um, I did um, the cardiac massage. So the heartbeat started. 
But I was wondering if I was another situation like that. I have I had no chest expansion by that time, so uh -huh. I couldn't uh, have a deep breath to blow the air forcefully into the patient's lung. At the same time, I'm massaging and then blowing. And also, uh, luckily, his bed was pretty good and high. It was low. I couldn't bend my uh, myself to really be at the patient's chest level. So I decided not to pursue cardiology. And uh, so I decided I would do um, um, rheumatic diseases um, specialty, which did not exist, exist at that time in the country. And in UK, I decided to first do six months of orthopedic surgery so that I could see that perspective. So I used to assist the surgeons do joint replacement, knowing one day that the table will be turned and I will be on the receiving end, yeah. which, which, which did happen. And uh, then I did um, medicine. And uh, one day I enjoyed Kentucky Fried Chicken they had just opened their first <laughs> store in London, England, and the chicken was pretty good. So I decided to uh, go to the place where Colonel Sanders, uh, <laughs> Colonel Sanders lives. So um, that's how I picked up British Medical Journal and applied. And the very first application I sent, uh, they accepted me. I landed in in Cleveland, uh, the hospital was a small hospital which doesn't exist anymore, Lakewood Hospital. Okay. And um, I could have um, applied um, to any place. I had pretty good uh, credentials, but I didn't want to call my classmates. Some of them are already in USA uh, because they. I thought they will think I'm needing their help. So I wish um, I had landed in San Diego subsequently <laughs> or in California. Uh, but uh, those were the circumstances. I just happened to land here. And, um, and I stayed once I joined Metro Health because it was the perfect place for my type of perspective. Also, I can mention that Within a few months of my arrival in 1969, I was asked to go to a federal building in Cleveland uh, where I was going to be sent to Vietnam. And uh, so I said, that's fine. I, I went there. I was 25 years old at that time, uh, unmarried. So I went to the federal building in Cleveland downtown and they asked me to fill up the form. I filled up the form. They said a colonel will uh, interview you. So I waited my turn. The colonel uh, looked at my form and then he said, young man, I have a good news for you. So I said, what's the good news? He said, you don't have to go to Vietnam. And I was surprised. And in my typical character, <laughs> I actually stood up, raised my hands, and I said, why is it, uh, do you doubt my loyalty or anything? 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> so he says, well, don't you know you have done your duty? I said, what duty? He said, you served in the army. You have already served in the army for two years. And the pact required that citizens of those nations, they even if they have served one year, they are exempted for further recruitment. So that is how I was exempted. So I said, um, um, but sir, that service I did to the nation that was very kind to me. I related the story uh, and I said, I was hoping to get the reward in the next word. And the Colonel said, you know, I give you the reward in this word. So <laughs> I, I didn't have to go to bed. Now. Subsequently, I found out that I was, that there was no reason for me to be recruited because I had just come. I wasn't a citizen. I wasn't even a green card holder. I was just a student or a postgraduate um, training person. Uh, but those days, uh, those things did happen. They needed a lot of uh, physicians for Vietnam and they were doing all this kind of recruitment. But um, so I didn't have to go to Vietnam. And that's an amazing story. And I thought you were going to say it was because you had spondylitis. Uh, <laughs> that they let you off the hook? Uh, <laughs> I didn't uh, actually, uh, the form didn't ask uh, if you are well or not. I huh. mean, there wasn't a column <laughs> where I could have said I have spondylitis. Yeah, that's interesting. So as you've gone through your career, obviously you have lived experience and I'm sure a ton of empathy for patients you're working with on the treatment plans and particularly the population that you have chosen to serve. Uh, how do you work toward incorporating your own experience maybe into treatment plans and how do you really make sure that people, because I'm assuming, right, I, I grew up not far from Metro. Uh, these are people who are traditionally like underrepresented with limited access to healthcare. Um, and it sounds like you've had some amazing outcomes. Yeah. Um, well, I came to know all the cultures, uh, all the disparities of healthcare, all the you know, the first year I spent was in Lakewood, where one could walk around even at uh, nighttime and a safe, very nice place. And then the next year, my training was at VA hospital affiliated with University Hospital. I had to live on the east side and the difference was striking. Um, the crime and all the other things, uh, I was surprised. In the same city, one <laughs> side uh, was so different than that university campus in the east side. Yeah. And um, so I never got a chance to see the rest of the better parts of the east, uh, Cleveland and, the, and those um, other areas. So I preferred west side of the river, Cuyahoga River. 
And uh, so I lived also in the West Side. And um, I found uh, the, um, well, there are a lot of stories to tell, but all the patients um, um, had uh, always uh, an impact on me. And I'd seen very many interesting patients. One of them was um, a deaf, a mute and a blind individual. Deaf, mute and blind. Uh -huh. The Almighty made her suffer a little bit more or tried to make her suffer a little bit more by inflicting rheumatoid arthritis. So here is a woman who uh, would write her history, type herself using a typewriter, deaf, mute, and blind. Okay. So I used to take care of her. I've been thinking of writing her story. I had pictures. I had gone to her place where she lived. I'd seen the typewriter. I'd seen how she would read the New York Times stories through that system where through fingers she can. And imagine that she would communicate with me by having an interpreter who will hold this woman's hand. Uh, she would grip the interpreter's hand and moving the fingers and, and the two are able to communicate which letter she's pointing. And, um, and that's um, how I would be able to verbally communicate with her in the clinic. But she will type her notes and I have copies of those notes uh, where she would relate everything. Um, and she managed to live quite a mature age. And uh, so these are the kind of uh, people that leave lasting impression. I... And, and she lived alone. Can you imagine? Wow. And she typed everything. So she... She typed learned... everything. Did she learn, a, I wonder, was it a Braille typewriter or was it just a yes. she just learned the yeah. keyboard? Yeah, yeah, all wow. those, yeah. Imagine that, that you're if, deaf and blind and you have to use your hands, which I know rheumatoid patients don't have an easy time using their hands. I had to keep the mobility of those fingers by injecting sometimes the small joints um, uh, to make, keep her fingers mobile. If she would have lost that, she would have lost the ability to communicate uh, without, I mean, would require a typewriter, but even then typing would have been difficult. But definitely that making the letters um, by hand, that shape that the interpreter could understand what, what letter she's adding to the previous letter so that they can figure out the word and then the sentence. So I kept also, because she was already blind, I used um, uh, medicine uh, at a full dose, uh, Plaquenil, which is very effective, even now for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus and other. And that kept her disease under control. And uh, also she managed to walk rather than come in a wheelchair. Wow. And and did, did with she... the help of the other people guiding her and 
what drove her? Because she sounds like an exceptional human being. Yeah, yeah. I I had spent a lot of time with her and um, and spoken with her. I have a lot of details. Also, uh, I recognize that the last time that she, she probably she had um, lung, I mean, cancer of the abdomen, and that was the reason for her passing away. But she had summarized for me some of the additional things, and she gave it to a resident while she was in the hospital, and the resident didn't pass on that information to me. I don't know what happened. He says I he had misplaced. So that could have been some of the additional information she wanted to reveal to me when she was in her last days. Oh, so that, that, that small gap exists. And I, but that, that resident said he misplaced or, or he liked it or whatever, I have no idea. That is like, what an inspiration. I mean, I know there are so many people with this disease that overcome a lot. Yeah. Uh, but to keep going, to sp I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I have it in me. <laughs> I, I definitely think you should write her story. And if I can do anything to assist, please let me know. That is. Well, uh, I can take your offer and um, I can embark on this uh, soon because I will be turning um, 80 next year, God willing. <laughs> so I want to do a lot of things and I have her pictures I've taken at her home and um, the notes and in fact I one time embarked on doing it but um, then I slowed down so maybe we can work together that would be amazing I, I there are so many stories like this that have to be told yeah. because they make Sometimes my mother talks about, she always compares that someone else has it rougher. And this is one of those moments where you just think somebody got up every day and overcame and probably, in, well, I won't speculate. I would love to learn more about her. So we can move on. Um, you really floored me with that. Uh, so one question, this maybe leads into this. Um, as you've gone through your career with individuals living with spondyloarthritis, have you seen a way or how can people become more active in their own care and advocate for themselves? Um, I think um, every patient um, uh, needs to be educated about um, their illness, what they're suffering from, and they should have pretty good uh, comprehension of what the facts are about their illness related to them in a way that they understand. And uh, uh, that's why I ended up uh, writing the book for spondylitis patients. Um, and once the patient is educated about the illness, 
then they are more willing to comply and follow the advice. And also they need support, not only from their family and friends, but also the healthcare providers. And um, unfortunately in this country, health um, care or, uh, how could I phrase it, um, uh, in, in Western Europe, um, healthcare or health is part of human rights. So the nation takes responsibility for providing the best care for their uh, inhabitants. In USA, I think we are still behind. And um, healthcare is not like um, human rights. And no. we have to rely on insurance and all these tiers uh, and the cost uh, is much more than in Western Europe, but the quality of care is doesn't match uh, what uh, inhabitants of Western Europe are able to achieve. So um, I hope uh, that we have a better healthcare system and everybody is uh, insured and healthcare should be equal to all. And uh, that aspect uh, we hope we would achieve. Otherwise this health disparity um, is so rampant, so unfortunate. Oh, it is. Uh... This could be a whole nother conversation, <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's, I think people don't even realize how disparate it is among different socioeconomic groups. Yeah. Uh, and when you talk about explaining the, the disease in a way that it resonates with people or it's broken down so that it's under, you know, that they can understand it. This but is, I can, I can mention that, um, uh, Spart uh, uh, Spondylitis Association of America have done a wonderful job. And um, also what is now evolving, the newer information that is coming out, I am very hopeful that spondylitis um, can be much better treated Already the treatment has markedly improved, but I think the better understanding of this disease now will lead to even more effective treatment. And also, hopefully in the near future, there may be mechanisms to identify people at risk so the disease could even be prevented because the evidence is now so overwhelming that ankylosing spondylitis is also an autoimmune disease, just like rheumatoid arthritis is, just like lupus is. And yeah. it, it has a much more hereditability uh, than even rheumatoid arthritis or even lupus. 90% yeah. um, of um, the risk uh, of the role for genetics in this disease. So, uh, uh, but uh, also the disease is um, pretty common, up to 1% of the population, just like rheumatoid arthritis. 
even it may be a little more common than rheumatoid arthritis. If you look at the wider spectrum of the related diseases put together. And uh, so much more effective treatments are available. The outcome looks rosy. And uh, I think things will uh, get much better. But those who are affected already with few spine, that can be reversed. But the fusion hopefully could be prevented and it requires early diagnosis. Uh, patients who are knowledgeable, they comply with the advice and the drugs that are available are affordable to all. Yeah. That, that is required. So Spondylitis Association, uh, to its credit, has done a great job. And uh, Jane Rukel, I think she's still well. I haven't... Yeah. Uh, and um, it is to her credit that um, things are looking so much better now for patients. And also Jane was the recipient of treatment before uh, of the TNF inhibitor treatment before it was even approved by the FDA because huh. her healthcare provider, the rheumatologist, uh, was bold enough uh, to start the treatment early because it had been approved for rheumatoid arthritis and he felt that it would be effective for spondylitis. And Jane told me that she was able to play uh, basketball <laughs> uh, <coughs> once <coughs> she was started on that treatment. <coughs> That's incredible. Well, and for the people listening who don't know, <laughs> Jane Burkell is the founder of the Spondylitis Association. Uh, and yeah, she has created some incredible advancements. There are, there are a few people like yourself who've also had a few, a little bit of <laughs> influence on how the disease has changed over the last several decades. Uh, what, I, what do you and, think? And I, I, I happen to, uh, I come to know Jane around the time she was starting or she had started this group and I knew her healthcare provider is still alive. <clears throat> and um, so the credit um, goes to that healthcare provider also in the sense that he was one of the co-authors <clears throat> of a study that showed uh, the genetics um, of uh, this disease. So I'm not naming that physician, but uh, uh, you will probably know who he is. Yes. Uh, okay. So let me ask you, in your experience, uh, as you went through your career, I'm sure that having spondylitis has uh, impacted in many, many different ways. Uh, and I don't think you're someone who likes to, um, as I like to say, trip over what is behind you. And I think you move forward. So I'm going to phrase the question as in your career, what are the most amazing things you've seen happen in the advancement of this disease? I think the most important thing is uh, the <clears throat> introduction of uh, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They have been still pretty effective. Not everybody needs to go to the next uh, stage of uh, treatment, which is called biologics. And um, 
then from the TNF inhibitors, then came another type of biology called interleukin-17 or IL-17 inhibitors. And now we are luckily in a stage where not everybody has to self-inject or get uh, IV infusion because now tablets are available that can that are very effective not only for spondylitis but also for psoriasis psoriatic arthritis inflammatory bowel disease the whole group of these diseases so that is a, a tremendous advance and um, at the same time the uncovering of the underlying basis for the disease is reaching uh, its ultimate goal of uh, fully understanding the cause or uh, or the progression of the disease so that um, it can be stopped uh, at early stage provided the treatment is initiated early so the outcome looks really really very good now and if someone's having the symptoms Maybe they don't know it's spondylitis, but they're having back pain or they think they might have something. At what point would someone want to see a rheumatologist? Well, inflammatory back, back pain is so common. And the typical feature of this disease is inflammatory back pain. So if a person with chronic back pain, by chronic mean persistence for more than three months, and the back pain is typically worse at late hours of the night or early morning. Late hours of the night or early morning eases up on exercise and on hot shower or taking these uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, that are rapidly effective. That person should be suspected of suffering from early form of the disease. So the worsening back pain and stiffness uh, early of late hours of the night, early hours of the morning, easing up on getting up and walking around or exercising or taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So those features uh, should make one suspect that this is initial. And uh, these diseases do occur in the families and thorough family history is important. I can tell you that I've studied my own family over many generations, starting with my grandfather and uh, 10 members of my family have suffered from this disease in its wider spectrum. 10. Wow. That's and I, I haven't published it uh, yet because I'm still dependent on the blood samples I have given to my friends and they haven't been, they promise they will, or one friend that promises he will send me the results of my family members. One of some of them have passed away but I haven't yet. He promises, but doesn't deliver. But what can I say? So I have not published my own extended pedigree, but 10 members 
have been affected. Wow. You can share this with him and maybe it will convince him he needs to get you get you the information. Uh, somebody could let uh, this segment uh, be sent to him. Yes, maybe maybe we'll get it done. Uh, so as our time wraps up here, this has been amazing. I wish we had four or five or eight hours to talk. Um, so we'll have to catch up again. But one of the questions I think in particular that listeners would be interested in coming from not only a rheumatologist, but, rheumatologist, but someone who has lived with this for so many years, I, what advice would you give or share with people who live with a chronic disease or spondylitis as they move through life? Uh, it doesn't have to be medical advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well all of us uh, are born with uh, uh, personalities that are can be, uh, on the one hand, some people think uh, that um, the hurdles are too difficult to surmount, so they give in. Then there are others who think... Uh, always uh, they are always optimistic or reasonably optimistic and uh, hope for the best and try not to give up and do the best they can do in the life given all the hurdles the life provides so that kind of a personal with that person with type a personality uh, they tend to do better than those who have a different opposing personality where they tend to give up. And um, so the success requires uh, also a kind of family members uh, who are always there to support, a strong family ties, that is very important. And uh, then community help, uh, uh, all these are important factors, and one has to be lucky enough to get the right healthcare providers. And if the patient gets right advice and the patient is compliant and they can afford treatment and they have a loving family or friends get moral support, the allied health professionals are always there to help and the outcome is pretty good for every such patient, given the fact that we still can't cure this disease, but we can manage it pretty well, much better than before. I think even in the last 10 years, it's gotten exceptionally better, it seems. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And I'm especially happy about this uh, tablet form of treatment oral treatment and also is amazing that so many diseases now we find it's linked with the, the gut the bacteria that we live with they we provide them place to live and they uh, in return help us live and let us develop our immune system and many diseases now turns out to have this aberration or interruption of the symbiosis, which is a medical term 
that um, live and let live kind of situation in the gut. And if that friendship uh, falls apart, it can trigger a lot of diseases. And that includes uh, spondylitis and related forms of the diseases that we deal with and many other diseases. Yeah, we've done a couple interviews with uh, Dr. Rosenbaum and uh, a couple others on microbiome, and it's just fascinating to me. So I I think that's the next big frontier, right? As it gets yeah. down into, into, the, uh, into the mainstream. So I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. I would love at some point to continue this conversation. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.